We have been covering the letter of Titus. In fact, we're in week seven of this series on Titus. Next week is actually our eighth and final week, so we'll actually be finishing. The truth is we could probably spend 16 or 24 weeks on Titus. Books are written on it, but in a sermon form, we've got to hustle. So if you remember, the letter of Titus was written by Paul to Titus, and Titus was Paul's right-hand man in many ways. He was a Greek convert to Christianity, and so he understood the secular world that uh, he lived in, maybe in a slightly different way than Paul did, because Paul was a Jewish convert. And if you recall, Paul's primary objective for Titus was for him to bring order to the church there on Crete by appointing elders. And these elders were supposed to lead, they were supposed to teach, but one of the things they were called to do was to rebuke false teachers who had arisen within the church there on Crete. And their task was vital because that false teaching, like all false teaching, threatened to turn people away from the truth and threatened to turn people away from God as well. Then in chapter 2, we looked at how the gospel impacts various groups within the church and how they're called to live lives of goodness and lives of beauty within the church. And then over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking primarily at what particularly should motivate and empower the godly lives that God calls us to live as well. Before we begin, let me take a moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that though you could have abandoned us, you didn't. Though you could have left us in darkness, you didn't. Father, we thank you that your son, you sent your son Jesus to be a light in this world, that through him we might understand you, that we might also understand ourselves and how it is that you're calling us to live in this world. And Father, I pray that as we surrender to you and as we surrender our lives to your son Jesus, that you would remove the chaos from our lives and that instead that you would bring peace and that you would bring rest. We pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Victoria Rivolo was a woman of Lake Ronca Coma, New York. Okay, I don't, I'm not going to say that again because it's too hard to read the first time. But she was uh, a truly remarkable person. I'll tell you why. She was driving to her niece's voice recital on November 13, 2004, when she passed a car headed in the opposite direction, driven by 19-year-old Ryan Cushing. Cushing was riding with five other boys who had just stolen a credit card to go on a spending, a spending spree. They had bought all sorts of stuff, and they hit the road. One of their purchases, I guess leading up to Thanksgiving, was a frozen turkey which Cushing decided to toss out of the window into oncoming traffic. The 20-pound frozen turkey smashed through Rivolo's windshield and nearly killed her. Amazingly, she survived, although she spent 10 hours that evening in an operating room while doctors reconstructed her face. When she initially went home, she had a tracheotomy, and she had endured months and months of painful rehabilitation just to try to enter back into some type of normal life. A year later, Rivolo attended Cushing's sentencing. Now, we've seen how these scenes have played out, how they can play out in courtrooms. Often, the victim or the victim's family demands justice. They just want the other person to be punished so that they can move on with their lives. Often, what they really want is revenge. But to everyone's shock and amazement, what Rivolo wanted was to offer mercy. Part of her statement reads as follows. Despite all the fear and the pain, 
I've learned from this horrific experience, and I have much to be thankful for. Each day when I wake up, I thank God simply because I'm alive. I sincerely hope you also have learned from this awful experience, Ryan. She's writing to the young man. There's no room for vengeance in my life, and I do not believe a long, hard prison term would do you or me or society any good. Cushing, who wept and expressed remorse for his action, was sentenced to six months in jail. He would have gotten a 25-year prison sentence if Rivolo, his victim, had not intervened and asked for mercy on his behalf. Rivolo added, I truly hope that by demonstrating compassion and leniency, I've encouraged you to seek an honorable life. If my generosity will help you mature into a responsible, honest man whose graciousness is a source of pride to your loved ones and to your community, then I'll be truly gratified and my suffering will not have been in vain. Ryan, prove me right. He did. And 16 years later, Ryan has a good job, a productive life, and a family. And he's been a speaker to numerous groups about the power of having been shown mercy because it was mercy, the mercy of Rivolo, who saved and changed his life. Mercy is one of the most powerful forces in the universe. For those of you who have trouble distinguishing between mercy and grace, mercy is where you're not given what you deserve. It's where you're not given what you deserve. For those of us who have experienced mercy over the course of our lives, we know just how powerful being shown mercy can be. We know how life-changing it can be. Throughout the book of Titus, there's been admonition, there's been direction given to these people of the church on Crete, and it's all been founded upon grace, and it's all been founded upon the mercy that they have received in Jesus. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to do whatever is good. More admonition, more direction, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy, because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent, and they're profitable for everyone. So what do we see in this passage here about mercy and about its impact on us? The first thing we see is that God's mercy rescues us from chaos. God's mercy rescues us from chaos. Let me read verses 1 through 3. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. There's a lot of chaos there. It seems clear 
from the rest of this letter of Titus, from what we know about the culture on Crete, and what we read here in verses 1 through 3, that the Cretan believers were in a transition from an old way of living to a new way of living, an old way of life to a new way of life. The reminders of these three verses alone probably point us to their old way of life. The words, not being subject to rulers and authorities. And if you remember, these were mercenaries. The, the island had been populated largely by mercenaries. They probably weren't practiced at being subject to anyone except the highest bidder. And rather than being obedient uh, or an obedient lot, they were probably used to making their fair share of trouble and, if anything, going their own way. And rather than being ready to do good, they were probably ready to do the opposite. They probably weren't peaceful. They probably weren't gentle. They probably weren't considerate at all. Rather, before they became followers of Jesus, they were likely, as verse 3 points out, foolish, disobedient, deceived, addicts, malicious, and envious. These new Christians sound a lot like the lost boys from Peter Pan, if you guys remember the story. Or maybe they sound like Jack Sparrow's crew in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Or maybe they sound like a rogue uh, group of outcast motorcycle bikers. Or if you can remember back far enough, they were like that crazy group of kids in the PE locker room when you were in middle school who put your shoe in the toilet. Remember those kids? This is who we're talking about here. It sounds very much like these Cretan believers had been rescued from a life of chaos. But the whole point of this passage is that God, in his great mercy, has called us out of that life of chaos as well. He has rescued these Cretan believers, and he's also rescued us. One of my favorite quotes is from Abraham Lincoln, where he said, I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. Let me read that one more time. Abraham Lincoln, I've always found that mercy bears richer fruits than strict justice. We see that in art where Jean Valjean is shown mercy by Bishop Muriel after stealing his silver, if you're familiar with the story of Les Mis. The bishop's mercy leads Jean Valjean out of a life of crime and into a life of goodness. But it's not just in movies and books where we see the transformative impact of mercy. We see mercy leading people out of lives of chaos in real life too. It's definitely true for me. In college, I went just a little bit crazy for a couple of years. I won't go into too much detail here, but suffice it to say that my life did indeed for a while become pretty chaotic. And a real turning point for me was during my sophomore year. I cheated on a test. I won't go into it too much. You can ask me privately about it. But I felt so guilty that eventually I went and I confessed to my professor. And I remember being terrified about what the consequences might be, but I went in and I confessed what I had done to him, and I remember verbatim what he said. He said this. He said, Brian, I've been forgiven for so much. How could I condemn you? I've been forgiven for so much. How could I condemn you? I deserve justice, but instead I was shown mercy. That moment, along with several others, which also I could tell you about privately, was a, deciding, a decided turning point for me in my life. What I remember most about that moment was rest and the peace that washed over me. Those of you in this room who have involved, been involved in a life of sin, you know that the chaos of sin is exhausting. Some of you know that feeling this morning. But God's mercy invites us out of chaos 
and into a beautiful rest. Some of you may remember your life of chaos before God and his mercy rescued you. And some of you are in the midst of that chaos right now. You may be scared to death to step out of that madness, but I invite you today on behalf of God to receive his mercy, which he freely offers, and to experience his rest. There's a story that Jesus told about this very offer of mercy in Scripture. It's called the story of the prodigal son. And if any of you are interested, I'd love to tell you all about it. So, Titus reminds us that God's mercy rescues us out of a life of chaos. He goes on to elaborate when he says that God's mercy also offers us rebirth and renewal. Look at verse 5. It says this, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So we just established that God rescues these, rescued these Cretan believers and us out of the chaos of sin. And here we see God's mercy on display yet again. We're told that God rescued them out of that chaos by the washing of rebirth. That word is palingenesis. It literally means to be born again. And the next word he uses is renewal, which again could be translated restoration. So if you have ever watched these restoration shows on TV, and then a third word he uses is washing, and washing indicates that apart from God, that we were or we are unclean. We're like a stray and starving dog with matted fur and covered with burrs and ticks and fleas that gets adopted into a caring home. The first thing that that adopted family does is to give that poor dog a bath so that he can leave the wild behind and he can come live in their home and be part of the family. That's what God's mercy offers us as well, washing and cleansing from our old rebellious way of life. When I think about that word renewal or restoration, again, as I mentioned, that it can be translated as well, I think about a beautiful old Victorian mansion on some southern downtown main street with a leaky roof and rotten floorboards. But if you go inside, there are these beautiful old fireplaces There are these beautiful, ornate doorknobs and arched doorways. Renovation is that process that tears out the rotten wood, that puts on the new roof and brings a home back to its original glory. This renewal, this restoration, is all done by the mercy of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Many of us in this room have experienced that restoration. Many of us in this room long for this restoration, for this renewal. We know that we were created to be so much more than we are, and God's mercy offers you that very thing that you long for to be made new. Finally, rebirth indicates that we're given a whole new life. When I think of someone who's given a new life, I think of adoption. If it's been a while since you cried, I recommend the documentary Operation Toussaint. Anybody ever heard of it? It's on Amazon. It's worth checking out. It tells the story of a man named Tim Ballard. I've got a picture of him up on the screen here. But he found an organization with the express goal of rescuing children who have been sold into a particular kind of slavery, if you know what I mean. In the documentary, Ballard and his team of mostly retired military uh, officers go to Haiti in search of the son of a local pastor uh, who was kidnapped while his parents were at church. He was a five-year-old boy. Disguised as American buyers, they infiltrate a child slavery ring operating out of what appears to be an orphanage. When Ballard goes in, a two-year-old boy walks up to him and takes him by the hand. That's the boy right there. 
A moment later, a young girl, slightly older, walks up to them. Ballard gives her a candy bar, and she immediately broke it in half, and she gave the other half to the young boy. Ballard realized that they must have been sister and brother. So again, posing as buyers, Ballard bought Colin, who we see here, and Colleen, his sister, and he rescued them from a life of utter horror. Later that night, after leaving the orphanage, Ballard called his wife and told her about Colin and his sister Colleen, and they agreed to legally adopt them into their family. The trajectory of those children's lives would be changed forever. They were given a new life. This same rebirth is what is offered to us as well. God in his mercy offers us washing. He offers us renovation. He offers us a new life. That offer sounds awfully attractive to some of you. You know the life that you've been living has been, frankly, tearing you apart emotionally, maybe physically, psychologically. It's actually been making you less and less human. Your life of chaos has not only been destroying you, but it's also been destroying the very people that you love the most. But God in his mercy offers you a new life. And that new life is empowered by the Holy Spirit within you. He offers to restore you, to make you fully human. And he offers to wash you And he offers to make you clean because, like a good parent, he loves you and he cares for you and he wants you to come home and he wants you to rest and he wants you to be made whole. That's the offer of mercy that God grants to us. So God in his mercy calls us and has called many of us out of these lives of chaos. We remember them. And in his mercy, he washes us, he restores us, he gives us a new life. Some of us remember those new lives as well. But finally, we see here in verses 8 and 14 that God's mercy also calls us to a life of goodness. I'm going to read verses 8 and 14. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not to live unproductive lives. See, God doesn't just want us to, he doesn't want to just accomplish something in us, although he does want that. He wants to accomplish something through us. He's calling us to a greater good, to a higher purpose, to a bigger story. From the beginning of the letter to Titus to the end of the letter, there's a calling issued to the Cretan believers to live a countercultural life, to live a countercultural life. That's a calling that every Christian in every time and in every place is called to, we're all called to live countercultural lives. Christianity should always be countercultural in some ways to the broader culture. Now, I've belabored the point, but Crete was an especially harsh and immoral culture. It was a culture known for dishonesty, for treachery, for sexual immorality, and for violence. That is uh, widely affirmed. And now these believers at the church there in Crete, they've been given new identities. They've been redeemed, so the letter tells us. They've been saved. They've been justified. They've been adopted. Their new lives should be radically different from their old lives. And those new lives should stand out. They should look different. This new life is in part described by Paul in several different parts of this letter as eternal life, eternal life. He echoes Jesus' prayer in John 17, 3, where Jesus prayed in the presence of his disciples, now this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Some of that life is not yet, 
but some of it is absolutely right now. Eternal life is at least in part knowing God and his son, Jesus. It's walking with God and it's surrendering to him in such a way that our lives look quite different from the world around us. In living that life, we experience deep satisfaction. We experience peace. We experience purpose. We experience rest. This countercultural life is also referred to here in Titus as that which is beautiful. The language here in verse 8 and verse 14, as well as elsewhere in Titus, it's referred to that way. The Cretan church is told repeatedly to devote themselves to doing what is good. The word translated good here is not agathos, which is one of the words for good. That has a more moral sort of scope to its meaning. But again, the word here is kalos, which is a word that can be defined as beautiful. So you could interpret this verse as to devote themselves to doing what is beautiful. This alternate lens of looking at the Christian life gives us really a different perspective on what life, a life lived in submission to God should look like. If you take the entire letter to Titus, you can get a glimpse of this beautiful life by looking at the different adjectives or the different words or the different descriptors uh, that describe this new life in Christ. I'm going to read some of these phrases and some of these words about this beautiful life. Faithful in marriage. Faithful in marriage. I don't think I have to create an argument that shows that that would be a beautiful thing for our moms and our dads, for our husbands and wives. Above reproach, humble, slow to anger, peace-loving, selfless, hospitable, sacred, self-controlled, holding firmly to the truth. Wouldn't it be great to live in a world where we could look at somebody and see that they're holding faithfully and firmly to that which is true, pure, dignified, loving, patient, reverent, kind, obedient, submissive, speaking evil of no one, gentle and courteous. The list actually keeps going. I could read more of those adjectives about this beautiful life that we're called to. And frankly, who wouldn't want to live that kind of life, really? Who doesn't want to live that life? Who doesn't want to have someone at their funeral say those things about them? Who wouldn't want to have a boss that lived life that way or a coach that coached that way? Who wouldn't want to be married to someone who lived and loved like that? What child wouldn't want to grow up in a family where they experienced experienced such safety and rest and peace? Who wouldn't want that? The answer is no one. We all want that. The question is, how do we get it? This beautiful life is ultimately a gift. That's why mercy is the key. Mercy, again, is where we're given what we do not deserve. Paul murdered Christians, no doubt about it. What he deserved was judgment, but instead he was given eternal life. The people on Crete deserved judgment too, and instead they were offered adoption into the family of God. Peter publicly rejected Jesus, and Jesus could have been done with him, but instead he offered Peter a meal by the sea, and he offered him forgiveness, and he offered him restoration. Each of us has our own story of mercy. What we deserved was to be abandoned, but instead we were chosen. We deserved to be held accountable, but instead our debts were forgiven. At its heart, Christianity 
is absolutely founded upon the mercy of God. Earlier in the service, Emily Kalin read a section of Scripture from the book of Romans. As many of you know, Romans is arguably the most extensive theological book in the New Testament. The first 11 chapters focus on the gospel, the bad news that we worship that which was created rather than the creator, the bad news that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the bad news that no one is righteous, not even one. But the first 11 chapters also focus on the good news. We're told in chapter 5 that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, before we got it right, before we got cleaned up, before we deserved it, Christ died for us. He offered us mercy before we even asked for it. And again, in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, we read of God's mercy. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And again, in chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And after unpacking 11 chapters of God's mercy, Paul begins chapter 12 by saying this, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And where do we get the ability to live this beautiful life but from God's mercy? Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for caring for us, for protecting us, for saving us. I thank you for the mercy that you have shown us in your son, Jesus. I thank you for the gift of your spirit who dwells within us to empower us to live this beautiful life that you have called us to. And Father, I pray that we would long for that life. I pray that we would pray for that life. I pray, Father, that we would surround ourselves with people who help us live that life, Father, not only for our own peace and our own rest, Father, but so that we can reveal and represent you to the world, that we can create domains that are also beautiful and that offer that same rest and that same peace to those that we love. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.